If you would, in your Bible, to Romans chapter 3. To Romans chapter 3. And as you turn there, I will pray. I want to remind you of two things before I pray. And, and that is, um, we, we do have, as we announced last week, uh, a trip to Israel planned. We had a meeting. We got interest. We had lots of people say that they were interested. We have not had much sign up. And so if you are interested in going to Israel, if you're planning to go to Israel, don't delay in letting us know that you're going and, and we'll help you take some next steps there. But if you have not yet heard about it, but just would like to go to Israel, and let me tell you, if you've never been to Israel, you want to go to Israel. It's an amazing, amazing place to be able to, just changes the way you read your Bible as you can picture the landscape and the places as you read. Um, see us for more details. We have plenty of room to take more people. And then tonight at five, we'll gather for uh, our gathered prayer time. Not only will we pray for needs and requests inside the body here, but we're going to be praying for our local leaders uh, and, and government uh, just around us. We are commanded in 1 Timothy 2 to pray for such things, and so we're going to be praying not only for those who lead in our community uh, tonight, but we'll be praying for the requests and needs of one another. Uh, that prayer will last about a, about a half an hour, and then we'll share a meal together. So bring something to share with others. It's always a wonderful time tonight, right here in this room at 5 o'clock. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to turn our attention once again to you in prayer in this confession of our dependence upon you. And Lord, as we approach your word now, we, we need your spirit to grant us the mind of Christ, to show us things that are unknowable in our own strength and power. Lord, it's not that we're not smart enough to understand the gospel, but that in our sin, we're simply opposed to it. And so, Lord, would you, uh, would you open our eyes and our hearts and our minds to the truth of your word, to what it calls us to, to willing obedience, to the goodness of it? Would you help us to understand that what you call us to and what you call us out of is not to diminish our joy, but to maximize it, that we might live joyful and happy lives before you? Lord, would you remind us each and every day that, that the promise of ultimate satisfaction from sin is a lie and that our sins and our temptations are just lying to us? That there is no lasting satisfaction there. That the momentary and fleeting pleasures of sin fade quickly, leaving us empty and hollow. May we turn from those and live in obedience to you for our good and for our joy and for our happiness. Lord, we pray for the Christian Aid Center this morning and we thank you for uh, just the staff there. Lord, particularly today, we thank you for the women and children's staff and the work that they're doing. Lord, we pray that, that they would be quick and clear and open with the gospel and to point people to you. Lord, we pray for tender and teachable hearts there, whether it be the men or the women in the program uh, or, or even just in emergency situations there to the staff as well, Lord. Let the, let the hearts of all there be tender and teachable and let, let, let people be responsive to the gospel. Lord, um, Lord we pray particularly uh, as, as there are some who, who have a tendency to mix past beliefs with the gospel and uh, and, and try and not really surrender to you, but, but, uh, 
but sound like they're adopting your belief system, Lord, Lord, the truth of what you've done for us. We pray that they would abandon all of those things that have not served them well in the past and that can't save, and that they would turn to you in absolute faith and trust, uh, and, and that there would just be a, a repentance, a turning, and an abandoning of those previous belief systems. Lord, as we turn to your word now, uh, just give us clarity of, of mind, Lord. Give us softness of heart and give us joy in it. And we ask it all for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. We're continuing this morning in our series looking at our vision and mission statement. Uh, as I said last week, we want to make sure that the compass as we start the new year is pointed in the right direction. And the elders have put in a lot of time and thought and prayer, as has the staff, in, in who are we and what is God calling us to do. If you recall from last week, I said that the mission of the church is given by God. It is not negotiable. It is not something that we invent or even discern from God. And if you look at the, the vast majority of church mission statements, though they may use different words, they're essentially saying the same thing. And that's a positive thing because the mission of the church is given by God. And the mission of the church, as we have put it in our own words, is to take steps together to love God and make Him known. And we're dividing that statement up into four sections, that we're all taking steps together, so we're all in process, we're not all, none of us are yet what God ultimately wants to make us, we're all in the process of becoming who God wants us to be, we're in that process together and the process is that we might love God, that is our ultimate and highest call, and make Him known. Those last two things are really not so much steps as a cycle. I think so often we think, well, the first, at least in my thinking, the first aim, the first mission of the church is to make disciples. And as you make disciples, then naturally evangelism flows out of that. But that's not usually the case. Usually what happens as we make disciples and as we invest in discipleship ministries is we become more and more and more internally focused. And then the, the not so proverbial, I, I say that because I've seen it far too often in reality, uh, church that is, has just been so focused on its own ministries and so uh, neglectful of evangelism that ultimately the church grows old and dies. And so the first mission of the church is to simultaneously reach the lost and make disciples. And it's this never-ending cycle. But we're fickle. People are fickle for many reasons. Maybe part of that is that our sin nature, maybe part of it is that we're not God and we don't know all things and we're trying to work things out. But we have a great tendency to ride the, again, proverbial pendulum. Excuse me. We swing from one extreme to another. And so often we see this even in a life cycle of a church. A church will be planted, and it's small. Maybe it's meeting in a home. That's certainly Trinity's story. And, and evangelism is urgent. 
And the first mission of the church is to reach the lost. And the church grows. And then in order to, uh, to be faithful in the command to disciple the people that God has brought into the church, buildings are purchased, staff is hired, uh, organizational structures are put in place. The more the staff does, Sometimes the less the church does, we put our eggs in the program basket rather than in the relationship basket, and all of a sudden we look around and we go, where are the young people? Where are the new believers? Where are the baby Christians? And, we, and we've gone from one generation that was urgent with the gospel to another generation that was urgent for discipleship. And now we, have, we end up back at a place where we're urgent for the gospel. And the pendulum just keeps swinging back and forth and back and forth. And if, once we get to that side of the pendulum that says we're going to focus primarily on discipleship, if the church is willing to see change, then often the pendulum will swing back. But if change is too scary, too foreign, if we don't, well, we're not willing to do things in a new way because, well, we've just always done things that way, oftentimes we end up just dying. So we want to be a church that has our vision set uniquely on, on these two sides of the pendulum. That simultaneously, we, we reach people with the gospel. And we, we disciple those who then believe. And the, and the cycle goes round and round and round. One of those pendulums that we tend to ride is the pendulum of legalism and license. Legalism is seeking God's approval based upon the keeping of rules. We have rules, and they must be obeyed. We can probably all think of rules that the church has enacted in its history. From you shall not play games, or cards, or drink alcohol, or, I mean, many, many rules. And we think that if we put these rules in place, if we worship on Saturday, if we don't eat meat, that God will love us more. Legalism is seeking God's approval based upon the keeping of rules. License, on the other hand, is seeking God's approval based upon the rejection of rules. That I, I, I understand grace, God has forgiven me no matter what I do, and therefore I can do anything, and I'm not going to subject myself to the rules of past generations. Now, I'm not talking here about for salvation. I'm not talking about people who try and earn their salvation, I'm talking about genuinely saved people who, after receiving the grace of God, move away from that grace, thinking that they can earn God's favor somehow by law-keeping or by law-breaking. 
And one generation is prone to legalism, and the next responds with license, and the next responds with legalism, and this pendulum continues to swing back and forth. Is there a better way? I think the answer is certainly yes, and it is found neither in legalism nor license. But since we're talking about our vision this month, uh, uh, you may be asking, what does this have to do with anything? Logan, you, you started out talking about the church and its mission to reach people, and now you're on legalism and license. What's the connection here? Well, the first part of our mission statement says that we are all taking steps. We're all taking steps, either forward or backwards. You are either progressing in holiness or stepping out of it. Dan Nims has frequently said, and I think it's a really helpful analogy, that when you're flying jets, you're either moving into position or out of position, but you are never just simply in position. It's a constant movement, either in or out of position. And so it is with the Christian life. You are either moving towards God in holiness or away from God in holiness. We are all taking steps, forward or backwards, but none of us are stagnant. And how we take those steps matters. How we take those steps matters greatly. And legalism is one way that people try and take those steps. And license is another way. Interestingly, I would argue that both of those are steps backwards. The theological word for taking steps is sanctification. Sanctification is just a, a big word that means being set apart. Something that was sanctified in Scripture, something that was holy, just means it's set apart. Uh, sometimes that means we're being set apart from sin. Sometimes that means being set apart for special purposes. So plates and candles and snuffers that were used in the temple were holy. That is, they were set apart for a special purpose rather than for common purpose. And, and so the, this idea of sanctification is just the process of becoming more and more like Jesus. The process of being set apart from the world. And in order to understand how we take steps together... I want to talk today about two aspects of sanctification. Two aspects of sanctification. The first is positional sanctification, and the second is progressive sanctification. If you're a note taker, there's our two points uh, for today. Positional sanctification and progressive sanctification. And the book of Romans weaves these two together beautifully for us. And so we're going to look today at this idea of taking steps, where we are, what we're becoming, and how these two things are woven together in the book of Romans, and the better way for us, and then what that has to do with our vision. So the first Thing we're going to talk about is positional sanctification. If you have studied much theology or are into church terms, this is another name, another word for this is justification. What is justification? Well, it's a word you're going to find in your Bible. It's a legal term that simply means one has received a declaration of not guilty. 
To, to be justified before God is to be declared not guilty. Now, in the book of Romans, Paul starts out in the first three chapters by making sure that we all know that we are guilty. And so, in chapter 3, verse 23, Paul reminds us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This verse has haunted me wonderfully for years because I think most of us connect the idea of sin with there's there's two words for sin both in Greek and Hebrew by the way and they both mean the same thing one term means missing the mark like an archer not hitting his target the other means trespass going where you should not go here we have the miss the mark terminology see most of us and I'm certainly inclined to this connect the idea of sin with action that I sin when I do something I should not do or don't do something I should do. But when Paul defines sin here, he says we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Whether it's in my acting or my not acting, my doing the wrong thing or the right thing, my not doing the right thing, whatever it is. There is not a moment of my life from conception to death that, is not, that, that, that does not fall short of the glory of God. Which means the entirety of my existence is sinful. It's not just my actions. It's not just when I do something wrong that I need God's grace. It's when I'm asleep. It's when I'm not yet born. It's when I'm offering God the best of what I have to His people in His church. There is not a moment of a single day where I am not in need of God's grace. Because there is not a single moment of a single day where I don't fall short of His glory. What? The penalty of sin, the effect of sin on you and me is far greater than we understand. And from Romans 1 through the end of chapter 3, Paul's great aim here is to look at the whole world categorized in two groups of people, Jew and Gentile, and accuse both of sin. Nobody escapes. We all have sinned. And fall short of the glory of God. And if that were not bad enough, Romans 6.23 gives us the penalty for that sin. In fact, it's not really the penalty. It's what we have earned. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. Not the consequence of sin. The wages of sin. The due payment, what I have earned... For my whole life is death. It's not just God's penalty. It's not just God's discipline. It is the wages that I have earned. It's what my life deserves. Do you see how legalism and license is impossible to get us to grace? 
Because even in our best and in our worst, what we deserve is death. We've earned it. This is a big problem. In Romans 3.26, following right on the heels of Romans 3.23, says that we hold... uh, Let's see... Romans uh, 3.26, there it is. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He, this is God, might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God is just. He will give the wage that we have earned. He is a righteous and just judge. And we are not in good standing with Him on our own. So before we can take any steps towards God, before we can move in any direction with Him, we have to first gain right standing with God. There are two ways that this does not come, and the first is legalism. So turn back with me to Romans chapter 2, starting in verse 17. Paul's speaking, remember he's, he's talked about both Jews and Gentiles, but here he's addressing the Jew because they've been given the law. They've been given all of God's commands and instructions. They've been given all the things that they need to do in order to be obedient and to be in right standing with God. And Paul says, starting in verse 17, if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed in the law, this is all good things, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? Remember, Matthew 5 tells us that all that takes is lust. You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Have you ever looked to anything besides God for your satisfaction? 1 Corinthians would remind us that complaint is evidence of idolatry. So let me, let me simplify it. Have you ever complained about anything? Then you're an idolater. You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and and circumcision but break the law. For, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter." There is no amount of obeying the law that can make up for our breaking of the law. The law is a package deal. It's all or nothing. Paul's clear about this in Galatians. 
the, the law isn't divided into sections that, well, if I keep most of it, I'm doing well. No, if you break any part, you've broken it all. It's a package deal. We're all lawbreakers. Legalism is never going to get us to God. The law can only convict because we all break parts of it. Usually what we do is fault others for not keeping the parts we keep, all while not keeping other parts. Hey, I'm really good at keeping these things, and so I'm going to criticize those who aren't. But I'm going to neglect the other things. I, I tithe, but I'm a glutton. I don't swear falsely, but I've committed adultery in my heart. We typically take the, the things that we're naturally good at in the law and then fault others for not keeping those parts of the law. I'm not saying obedience doesn't matter, by the way. We're going to come back to that. I'm simply saying obedience to the law doesn't curry, obedience to parts of the law doesn't curry favor with God because it's a package deal and we're all lawbreakers and we all already deserve death. So being good Americans who pull themselves up by their bootstraps and who are, are disciplined and just saying, I'm going to be disciplined and obey and God will love me, that doesn't work. License doesn't work either. The legalist thinks, uh, the license doesn't work either. Look with me at Romans 6, 1 through 7. Romans 6, 1 through 7. After speaking of all this, and of speaking of the grace that God gives us, and we're going to come back to grace. Grace is the forgiveness of God for our law-breaking. The, the, not for our law-breaking, but in, in, in spite of our law-breaking. After explaining grace, Paul says this in chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. This is a strong term, by the way. No way! How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Look again at verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Here's what the licenses says. Well, I'm a sinner. I've broken God's law. I acknowledge that as a problem. But God has lavished his grace on me. And the more I continue to sin, the more God pours out his grace. And the more grace that God gives, the better God looks. So we should continue in sin that grace may abound. And Paul says, by no means. May it never be. The licensist usually uh, does this practices this means of approaching God under the guise of authenticity. 
Well, it's okay that I'm a sinner. It's okay if I don't have it all together. It's okay if I give in to this sin and I'm not perfect because God is gracious. And what the world needs is not to see a holy people. What the world needs is to see our authenticity. The legalist thinks he makes God look better through obedience. And the licensist thinks he makes God look better through disobedience. The problem with both of these is different. Uh, but, but to be sure, what Matthew 5.16 tells us is that our light is to shine before others so that they may see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. The licensist forgets this truth. The licensist forgets that sin is dangerous and harmful and destructive and damning. Yes, grace forgives us of our sin, but the goodness of God doesn't leave us there. These both come from the same root, and the same root of both is self-righteousness. That I'm more righteous if I obey, or I'm more righteous if I disobey. Both of them say, look at me. They're really just the same thing. If you're a reader here, and I understand that there's less and less readers in the audience, but I'm still going to keep recommending books. Sinclair Ferguson's The Whole Christ is incredibly helpful on this matter. And if you're not a reader, you should be. The world is run by readers. That's not going to change. So how then do we gain a right standing before God? What is the better way? How do we be declared innocent? If it's not through obedience and it's not through disobedience and we're all sinners and we all have this problem before God, what then? Well, the answer is incredibly simple. And for many of us, incredibly different. Turn with me to Romans chapter 1. We're going to look at a few passages now in Romans. We're going to go from Romans 1 to Romans 4 to Romans 5. Romans chapter 1, Paul's thesis statement for the whole book, starting in verse 16. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. I am not ashamed of the good news. The good news of the sinless life of Jesus Christ his penal substitutionary death in our place. Penal meaning he bears our penalty. Substitution meaning in our place. His death and his resurrection. That's the good news. That Jesus lived the perfect life we cannot live. That he died in our place bearing our penalty and was raised again three days later. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And this is not new. Because in Romans 4, when Paul wants us to understand that that it has always been this way, he points to Abraham, the very start of God's redemptive plan, starting in verse 1. What shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? In other words, according to law-keeping. For if by Abraham... 
For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. This word counted is an accounting term. Think of this word counted in in Romans chapter 4 here like a deposit in a bank account. Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. It wasn't by his works. In fact, what, what Paul is pointing us to as he draws us back to Genesis chapter 15 is before Abraham was even given a single law to obey, before he was told to be circumcised or circumcised his children, before he was told anything, God said, I'm going to give you a son, I'm going to make them and him a nation, and somebody is going to come from him who who will bless the whole world. That's the Messiah. That's Jesus. And that's the context in which it says Abraham believed him and it was counted to him as righteousness. It wasn't accounted to him for obedience. There wasn't anything yet to obey. Abraham just believed. God said, I would do it. Abraham said, I believe it. And that settled it. And and Paul is using Abraham as a proof for us that that's how we are saved. Not by our law keeping, not by our law breaking, but God said he would send the Messiah to live our life, die our death, and be resurrected again. And he did it, and we just simply have to trust it. Where this begins to eat at us is where we feel like we have to contribute something. The only thing we contribute to salvation is the sin that made it necessary. God does everything else. We simply have to trust him. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. Romans 6.23 tells us exactly what is due to us. If you want to work to earn God's favor, it's an all or nothing package. God will give you what is due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Verse 22. That is why faith was counted to him as righteousness, to Abraham. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be accounted To us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification, raised for our positional sanctification, raised for our declaration of not guilty. Jesus was treated as though he was guilty so that we could be treated as though we were guilty. If Elder Bill and I, if we go, go rob a bank and we, we get caught and we take off running and I outrun him, which may be a miracle in and of itself, but, but I outrun him and he gets caught and I don't and he goes to court and he gets put on trial and I start feeling guilty because I made this plan, I hatched it, I got his help, now he's caught and I'm innocent and in court I stand up and say, Your Honor, I would like to pay his sentence. Am I actually paying his sentence? 
No, I'd really just be paying mine because I deserve the same sentence. In order to pay his sentence, I'd have to be innocent. And so Jesus, the law obeyer, says, I'll take their consequence. And he is condemned in our place and dies in our place and is buried in our grave and is raised again. And he pays the penalty of our sin so that as he has declared guilty, though innocent, we can be declared innocent though guilty, when we simply trust in him. The better way is faith. Romans 5, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. If it's Grace, by very definition, can't be earned. If you earned it, it's a wage, not grace. Jesus earned it on our behalf, and it's given to us. The first step is faith. Not not obedience, not sin, but faith. Simple trust in God. And when we trust Christ to be righteous where we were not, to die in our place, to be buried in our grave, resurrected three days later, our sin is accounted to Him and His righteousness is accounted to us. And before God, we are declared not guilty. This is justification. This is positional sanctification. And it all starts there. When we trust Christ, we are declared not guilty. Why is somebody not saying amen? Amen. Thank you. This is the best news ever. Somebody should be jumping up and down right now. That's where it starts. He did it all. We trust him. We gain it all. We are declared before God not guilty. All of those wages that we are due, they get paid to Christ. All the things that he deserved, those wages are paid to us. But the reality is, is when we're declared innocent, we don't actually become innocent. We all still struggle with sin. We all still fight that sin. And and we're prone to to do that through those means of legalism and license. Well, if I just put enough rules in place. Now, if, if you want to put rules in place in your life for yourself to, to be obedient to God, that is excellent because obedience matters. And we're about to look at that. Obedience matters. But usually what the legalist does is not just put rules in place for their own good. They begin to apply them to everyone else. See, faith looks at people and says, I want you to be like Jesus. Legalism looks at people and says, I want you to be like me. 
license. It's just, well, hey, grace has been given, so let's continue in sin that grace may abound. May it never be. Our position as believers, if you have trusted Jesus Christ today, your position before him is innocent, not guilty, righteous. Christ's righteousness, his complete and perfect righteousness has been accounted to you. If you have not trusted Christ today, oh, would you please? Would you please not trust yourself Would you not lean further into what brings the wages of death? Would you trust Christ and receive his grace? But once we do, this begins the process of progressive sanctification. Progressive sanctification. And I'll try and move much, much faster here. This is the process of becoming what God has already in Christ declared us to be. It's the process of becoming Innocent. It's the process of becoming not guilty. Uh, a few passages in Colossians chapter 3, and we don't have to look at these in great detail, but I think it's going to be really, really easy to see the process. Starting in verse 5, Paul says, put, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, here it is, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. We are being renewed. How? In knowledge after the image of its creator. We are being renewed. The more we know about who our creator is, what his image is like, the more we know of Jesus, the more we are being renewed in his image. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all in all. Sanctification is a process, one we participate in. We are to put to death what is earthly. We are to put off what is sinful. But we do it by the power of the Holy Spirit as we are being renewed, not to earn God's favor, but because in Christ, we already have it. Philippians chapter 3. Again, chapter 3, starting in verse 12. Paul says, Not that I have already obtained this, speaking of the resurrection of the dead, or I'm already perfect. So even the Apostle Paul tells us, I'm not perfect yet, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus made me his own. There it is. I press on towards the resurrection from the dead. I press on towards perfection. I press on to make it my own, not because I want to be seen as righteous in and of myself, but in response to Christ Jesus who has already made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. We press on Not to earn God's favor, but because in Christ, we already have it. 
2 Corinthians chapter 3, 18. It says, And we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is spirit. We all with unveiled faces, the veil that once used to stand between us and God has been removed. We have seen the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We get to look into the scriptures with 1 Corinthians, the mind of Christ, and see who Jesus is. We get to behold his glory, his greatness, his perfection, his law-keeping, his substitutionary death, his love for us and delight in us, his resurrection from the dead. His accounting of righteousness to us because our sin was accounted to him. We get to look into that with unveiled face and beholding his glory. We are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. How do we do that? Not through books about the Bible, though those can be helpful. Not through the chosen. It's not scripture takes a huge amount of leniency, though it may be helpful. But we see the glory of God in the face of Christ in his word. And it's so easy to neglect the word of God for things about the word of God. Oh, we can't do that. There are freshly minted Bible reading plans out there. Get one. Andrew sent to me this online Bible reading plan generator where you can put in all your own parameters and it'll spit out a Bible reading plan for you. See him, see me, we'll get you the link to it. Read through the Bible in one year or five years, but get in the Word of God. We don't become more like Christ by our own strength in obedience or in disobedience. We do put to death what is earthly in us by the power of the Spirit uh, through the knowledge of the image of our Creator by beholding the glory of the Lord. How does this fit into our mission? Well, We're taking steps together to love God and make Him known. But what about our vision? What about reaching 500 in five? What about this vision of having open homes and lives and relationships of every household in Trinity connecting with another household that doesn't know God for the purpose of sharing the gospel? Well, I think one of the things that Scripture teaches us is that that part of our sanctification, that part of our discipleship, that part that tells people about Jesus is our first step, not our last. Because in Matthew 4, Jesus says, calls his first disciples, he says, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. He doesn't say, follow me and I'll make you a mature believer. He tells them right from the start, you follow me and you're going to go fish for other people. That's the first step. Matthew 28, right at the very beginning of the church, Jesus says, go and tell, make disciples, baptize, teach them to obey. The first step of making disciples is telling people about Jesus. In Acts chapter 1, at the ascension, when Jesus goes to heaven, he says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and the ends of the earth. 
The first step in our discipleship is to take the gospel to those who, know Jesus, who don't know Jesus, not the last. You don't need one more class. You don't need one more study. You don't need one more book. You just need to sit down to have coffee with somebody and say, what makes you tick? And then say, can I tell you what makes me tick? I was watching a video this week um, on this streaming service I get, and uh, it's kind of interesting, I won't go into the whole context, but the guy starts out this one episode, it's kind of shocking, there was no, there was no hiding, he says, I'm a rescued man, I'm a rescued man, my life was headed one direction, and the wages of that direction is death, but Jesus intervened. He changed the course of my life. He changed the direction of my life. He rescued me out of sin. I'm not righteous yet. He's making me that. But because of his life, death, and resurrection, I have right standing before God, and you can too. If you know enough to be saved, you know enough to tell somebody else how to be saved. If you want a helpful tool, write these four things down. God, man, Jesus response. God is holy. Man is sinful. Jesus died in our place and lived a righteous life. And our response is repentance and faith and we trust him. And we can be declared righteous in God's court. We're all taking steps. In Christ, we've all been declared innocent. By the power of the Spirit and the Word of God, we are being transformed into the image of God. But the first part of that transformation, the first part of our discipleship, not the last, is to tell people who Jesus is and what He has done. Who are you building relationships with for the purpose of sharing the gospel? Lord, make us quick to speak. Make us quick to, to be joyful at the truth that you have saved us, you have redeemed us, you have uh, declared us innocent, not because of ourselves, but because of what you have done. Lord, give us loose tongues with which to share the gospel. Maybe we'd be quick to, to invite people into our homes and lives and worlds and quick to tell them of all that you have done with, for us. Maybe, may we be quick to tell them that we are rescued men and women. And that you have rescued us from what we deserve. And lavished grace on us in Christ. Lord, may we take the higher way of not looking to our own righteousness or unrighteousness for our standing with you. But, but certain of our standing before you because of Christ May we press on towards the goal, towards making it our own. May we put off what is sinful and dead and earthly and put on righteousness in Christ as we behold His glory and are renewed in the knowledge of the image of our Creator. May it all be for your glory and for the salvation of the lost. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.